0: City family, how's everybody doing today? Good, good. Um, we are going to be reading, or I'm going to be reading scripture out of Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. If you have the smaller Bible, it's going to be found on page 510, Old Testament, minor prophets narrow it down just in case. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll give y'all a minute here. It's going to be a long passage, so bear with me. If I get a little dry in the throat yeah. Let's pray for me. All right, and it reads, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shijanos." O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years revive it, in the midst of the years make it known, in wrath remember mercy. God came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Horan, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian, they trembled. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you in rift, and the the ringing waters, the ringing waters, swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, as they sped, at the light of your glittering spear, you march through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter them, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. The Lord have the blessing of the real word.
1: Thank you, Mike, for blessing us with the reading of God's word this morning. The prophet... Habakkuk. He lived during troubling times, Habakkuk did. During the time of Habakkuk, his nation was falling apart. Sin and injustice were all around him. Neighbors lied to one another. Everyone took advantage of one another. No one trusted each other. No one trusted the leaders at the time. There was iniquity. There was sin. Wherever you looked. wherever he turned, there was sinful behavior that was taking place. The leaders were not preaching the word of God. We read in the other, um, his contemporaries, like Jeremiah, Nahum. Those were his contemporaries of Habakkuk, who Jeremiah wrote a lot more than Habakkuk did. We learned that um, the, the, the people wanted to hire preachers that told them what they wanted to hear. So they had itching ears, but nobody wanted to hear what actually God wanted to say to them today. So he had cried out to God for relief. And Habakkuk had cried out to God to listen to him. He he asked him in Habakkuk chapter 1, God, are you there? Are you listening? He wanted God to step in and deal with the rampant sin in society. And in response, God said to him, I'm already doing something. I'm doing something in your day that if I told you, you wouldn't even believe it. And so that's maybe one of the reasons why God didn't reveal all of his plans to Habakkuk. Sometimes we think that God has to tell us every step along the way. And God says, "My my word is a lamp unto your feet. So we don't know the whole path sometimes, and God says, "I'm already at work." In fact, I know that society is going downhill fast, right? But I'm sending the Babylonians that are going to come, and they're going to take care of you. To which Habakkuk replied, "The Babylonians—they're worse than we are. Your answer is worse than the problem, right?" And so he questioned God. And last week we taught, we saw how God said, "You know what? Don't worry about Habakkuk. I'm still God. I'm still in control." And what I'm going to do is I'm going to judge them according to their own sin, but I'm going to use them as an instrument of judgment for you and for your people to d- d- during this time. So that's what's going to be happening at the time. That's what's actually taking place here. So Habakkuk questioned, God answered. Habakkuk questioned again, God answered again. It wasn't the answer that Habakkuk expected, but he knew who God was, and so he knew that God is right, God is just, and because of God, who God is, that Habakkuk can trust God. He doesn't have all the answers. He can't see all the way, but he knows that he can trust God. And then Habakkuk chapter 3, this is his response to the answer that he got from God. And this is like a, a prayer written in the form of a song because he didn't know when this was going to take place. He didn't know when the judgment was going to happen. And so he writes this prayerful, praiseful song while he is waiting. In the meantime, when God says, I'm going to act in this way, but God hasn't yet act, this is the time where he finds himself. It's a time of waiting, a time that many of us have found in our own lives as well. Whenever we're waiting, we know God's promises, we know God's truth, we know who God is, but we're waiting for God to act, and that's exactly what God's going to do. God is going to act. I've said before, you know, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk. We know um, that he's only mentioned, like, here in this letter that we have, and he's not really mentioned any other place. Because of what he writes here, he does have some knowledge about history, and like I said before, either he worked in the temple, or I think he could have been a singer in the temple, or he he was at least there in the temple, Uh, because um, at the very end of the book, which we'll get to next week, he ends by saying, this is to the choir master, with stringed instruments. Also, this is a prayer, but this is actually also a song, and we know that songs are poems, right? So this is like a this is poetry that he's writing here. And you know, Habakkuk had heard that God was going to respond, and so he 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 thinks about what he's writing here, and he writes this poetic response. You know, um, whenever we're in that waiting time of God, and whenever like so. Habakkuk, he had this knowledge that God was going to do this, right? And Habakkuk, he could have easily um, had a couple responses when God says, I'm going to send the Chaldeans, and then I'm going to judge the Chaldeans. So, like, what he could have done, right, is he could have, like, placed some sports bets. He could have, like, went and said, Hey, I'm going to, like, I, I bet you a month's salary that the Chaldeans are going to attack us, and we're going to lose, you know? He could have done that. He didn't do that, right? Actually, what he probably, what I would have done, he could have got prideful and conceited and puffed up. He could have said, like, okay, like, I know, right? I, I know what's going to happen here. And he has actually just wrote, written about the response that we have to God is we don't respond in faith. We respond, I mean, we don't respond by being prideful or puffed up, but by being humbly and being um, humble before the Lord. So Habakkuk, he demonstrated faith in God. Instead of being prideful, he demonstrated faith in God, trusting that God was listening, that God was going to act. And he trusted that eventually, as we saw last week in chapter 2, that the knowledge of God will cover the seas, will cover the earth like water covers the seas. And so in chapter 3 here, he spends his time waiting and praising God, confidently trusting God. That God in troubling times by praying and praising God for the work that He was done, that He has done. And, and that's kind of like the big picture of what we see here in chapter three. Like I said, he writes in a poetic form and poetry form. And he writes in Hebrew poetry. Poetry in English is usually marked by rhyme. I mean, not every English poem, but it's definitely a marker of English poetry is is, is rhyming. And also another distinctive feature of English poetry is meter, or the rhythm of words in English poetry. Shakespeare wrote in iambic pentameter, which gives it a cadence as it flows, as it flows nicely to your ears. And one of the YouTubers that I watch, he said uh, that Shakespeare could have never have been French, because I don't speak French, but in, you might speak French, but in in French, the emphasis on your sentences is always at the very last syllable, and so it doesn't make sense to quote Shakespeare in French, and because he wrote in like this sing-songy way, like "There once was a man from Nantucket. You know what I mean? It was a way that we talk in English, right? That is a sing-songy as you go along, and that's that's English poetry, and it makes sense that you can fit our words into make making it make sense. That's that's called meter. That's called rhyme. Well. Poetry, kind of like in English, she also uses figurative language as well. And in Hebrew poetry, rhyme isn't that important, but the meter and the sound of the words are important. And then also there's, uh, there's uh, what's called parallelism in Hebrew poetry. So you have a line, and then you have it parallel in the following line. So in other words, the words themselves don't rhyme, but the lines and the meaning of them kind of rhyme together. So that's a distinctive feature of Hebrew poetry. As we look at this, I wanted to give us a little background and understanding because this is written not like history, and it's not written like a letter. This is written more like a song, but it's not like a song that we would think of in our our English language, but it's a song that they would know, they would relate to. And so he writes about historical facts that we'll see here in a minute, but he writes them in a poetic form. Does that make sense? Okay, so verse 1, this is a prayer but it's also a song, and so it's a public prayer meant to be heard by others. And like I said, it's also a song because of the very last verse of the Bible. We also know it's a song because of the word Selah that was it kind of like stuck in there three different times as Mike was reading. A lot of scholars think that you see that in the book of Psalms a lot, so it had some kind of musical reference. So it was either kind of saying like... Um, change of thought or it's this is a, a musical break maybe a pause and maybe this is a second verse or something like it's something musical that we see in Hebrew poetry and also the very first word which I have to hand it to Michael for reading that word according to shigi I mean that's that only appears in psalm 7 and then it appears here in the bible so again we don't really know what that word is but obviously it's some kind of musical maybe it's a musical instrument that they used or something but those are all indicators that What we have here is a poem. We have a song that was meant to be sung. So let's take a look at this psalm together. Let's take a look together. And remember, this is Habakkuk speaking directly to the Lord. And he begins in verse 2 by saying, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Or in the NIV says, he is aware of God's fame. In other words... He knows everybody knows about God. I've heard about you, Lord. Maybe you heard about him in the temple. Maybe where he worked, you just he was familiar with what was taught in the temple. And says, God, I have heard about you. Other, you know, I have heard about your fame and the reputation of God's works was well known by the prophet. And he says that it is. It, I am fearful, and that's not like in a bad way. That's more like in a way he says, I stand in awe of you, Lord. Because of the works that you have done, I stand in awe of you. And that's the basis for his plea in verse 2. Notice there's a threefold request here that makes up his petition to God. And this is where um, I believe that for us today, this is where we can take Habakkuk's prayer as an example for our prayers today. This is kind of what we should be praying today. And it's interesting because this is the only part of everything that was just heard read in the whole song. This is the only, like, prayer request. This is the only petition to God. His only plea is in these, this second half of verse 2 in these three ways. And the first request is for God to revive his work. Revive your work, O Lord. Bring it to life again, he prays. We have seen your work in the past, so please, Lord, will you do it again? Will you revive your people again, O Lord? That should be the prayer of us as well, and the prayers in our hearts as well. That when we pray, we pray that God, revive in my heart, O Lord, the work that you've done in the past. Because maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you've made a commitment to the Lord, and, and things have been rough for you lately. And maybe it's something that's happened in your life, or maybe it's just life, you know? And so we have to be able to go to the Lord and say, I... Don't even have anything to pray for, God, but revive the work that you've done in my life again. Revive your work, God. Bring us again a fresh movement of the Holy Spirit for our church, for your people, for our community. May God revive his work in us again. We are grateful for what God has done, and we ask God to move again in the power of the Holy Spirit into our own lives and the lives of our church. And he says, make it known, God. That's his second request. Reveal your work to your people. Make it known. And he uses that repeated phrase. You see the repetition there. In the midst of the years. In other words, in this day. Right now, currently, God. Do it again, Lord. Do it again, God. Revive us. Make it known to us. Provide understanding. And thirdly, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. The word translated wrath here can also be translated as agitation or turmoil. And so what we see is that Habakkuk lived in a very troubling times. He lived in a disturbing world. And so he knows that it's a world that needs God's mercy. It's the same world that we live in today, right? That we ask God to show your mercy among us, God. And Habakkuk knows that judgment is coming, and so he asks for God's mercy to to come with God's judgment, because we know that we serve a merciful God. God has shown himself to work in the past, and he has shown mercy to his people. And so this gives Habakkuk the confidence and the ability to pray confidently that God will do it again and ask God to do it again. And so the rest of of Habakkuk chapter 3 is like this psalm that's this god-glorifying song of praise about god's majestic presence and it takes place in three movements there's his arrival and his appearance and then his activity that he really talks about here and then we're going to end with habakkuk's response and so like i said this is a form of hebrew poetry and it's kind of a, what we see as a, a theophany a theophany describes an appearance of god in great power and glory, usually referring to the Exodus. Like, for example, how we say, like, God's mighty right hand, knowing that, like, that's just kind of, for us, a way that God shows himself to us is in this, what's called a theophany here. And a lot of times they deal with Mount Sinai or they deal with the Exodus. And it's not, like I said, not an exact historical account what Habakkuk's about to do here, but you can see clearly he's referencing historical things in the past, you know, there's, there's something happening here in the past that, like, you know it's referencing something, but not exactly sure. I got my kids to listen, they listen to um, American Pie, that song that's an old Don McLean song from the 70s, and there's a line that repeats, like, the day the music died, and they asked me, what does that mean? And I said, it's actually, and it references um, when Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and uh, one other guy died in a plane crash, I forget who it was, but they said on the the paper, said this was the day the music died when three famous artists died in a plane crash. And then they asked me, what about the other parts of the song? And I was like, I have no idea. And I looked it up, and everybody's like, we have no idea what he was talking about. Like, there's a whole bunch of words in there that nobody knows, but as you listen to the song, you're like, okay, he's talking about an actual historical reference, and he's also adding all this other things about candlesticks and stuff that everybody's like, what are you talking about? I don't know. But it's got some catchy lines in it, of course, and it's referencing a historical thing. And I I found that this, this song by Habakkuk kind of has that kind of feel to it. Like, when he's talking about it's a historical event, we all know, it, right? But we don't exactly, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that every little word lines up with something from history because he's not writing history. He's writing poetry. And so he starts in verse 3 by saying, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran." So we know that God is in his holy temple, right? But these places are actual places. Timon is in southern Palestine, and the Paran Mountains are further south, on the eastern edge of the Sinai Peninsula. So think about this. God began the formation of his people, of Israel, in this region. And it's the place in which Israel found refuge from Egypt after they got delivered from the Egyptian army at sea. It's the place, Mount Sinai, where the order of the community was established under God's instructions. It's the place where God began to act in mighty ways to lead and protect and judge and, and to shape and to form his people. That's where it all started for them. And so when God did this amazing work, it's, it's seen and it's heard by all. But the earth being full of his praise, as it says in verse 3 right there, was not just a response of men, but this is, this is the reality of God. His power, his splendor covers the heavens. That is the glory of God. And in verse 4, it's this, fo- this focus on this theophany of God's power at, through his, his glory here. And s- we see the description of the visible, powerful presence of the creator, warrior God in creation and, and warring against the wicked here. And so the f- first picture in verse 4 is a picture of brightness. His bright splendor is seen in the light of the sun at sunrise. And the word rays in verse 4, it literally means horns. So you think of lightning bolts. Two lightning bolts. It's actually a a pair of horns when it uses that word raised there. Lightning bolts in his hand showing what? The power of God. And it was an outward display of God's power. But in all these things, his true power was held back. It was veiled. It was hidden still. And there was also verse 5, it talks about pestilence and plague and in hebrew those words kind of sound alike in english they both begin with the letter p but in hebrew they sound alike so again we lose a little bit of the of the beautiful words that are being used here but the word pestilence means burning fever and plague is both of those things are two weapons of judgment that actually came with war and it's showing here that god was totally in control he He could command all the forces of nature and use them to demonstrate his power. And then in verse 6, it says, He stood still. He shook the earth with an earthquake. The mountains crumbled in an avalanche of rock, and the everlasting hills collapsed. They sank low, he says. God's people were being led out of slavery in Egypt after the Lord Yahweh defeated the Egyptian gods in battle. And now, if you're looking at this, like I said, you can see this is kind of like a Hebrew poetry explaining the Exodus. Well, now, after they came out of slavery and God defeated the Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods, they're going into an area now where there's the Canaanites, where every tribe and every village had their own little gods. And on the high hills, they had set up Asherah pools and worshiping the god Baal and the, this false worship was already established there from of old, but you see that the maker, the creator, is more powerful than all of them. And the hills themselves acknowledge the presence of God, in essence, bowing down to God, creator. And in verse 6, it says that the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So our God came before their gods, and our God is the God of gods. Those other gods are just false gods. We worship the one true God. And the mountains crumble. Imagine the people in verse 7, it says, living in tents. Imagine if you were living in a tent. I know even when a thunderstorm comes in a tent, it's kind of frightening, right? Now imagine an earthquake and the mountains crumbling. You would be scared too, right? The people of Cush and Midian, it says in verse 7, they were living south in the Sinai area. And they were dealt with for their idolatry during the Exodus. But this the text of this poem here, it's interesting. All along so far, if you've been paying attention, you might have noticed that they're all written in past tense verbs in the ESV. So let's say this, God did this, God did this. Well, you know what? In other versions of the Bible, they're written in present tense verbs because it's not exactly sure. In English, we don't have a good past tense or past-present tense verb, to explain what's happening here. And I think it's helpful to point that out, because we have to realize, like, these aren't just descriptions of what God did in the past, but really about what God is doing in Habakkuk's day, and what God is doing in our day as well. There is a timelessness about God's actions that is revealed whenever you, when you look at this poem of Habakkuk. And the point is that all nations are powerless before Yahweh. And so now we see a change in verse 8. After describing God's coming, the revelation of God's majesty, he switches it to his activity. And he makes this change with three rhetorical questions in verse 8. Was Yahweh, or the Lord, was his anger against the rivers, against the streams, against the seas? Of course not, right? Right? It's like that scene in the old Steve Martin movie, The Jerk, where Steve Martin is kind of a, not a bright guy and he's standing in front of a gas station and somebody's trying to shoot him with a gun and they shoot, they miss him and they shoot the oil cans and he looks and so somebody's trying to shoot the cans. They hate these cans and so he runs and hides behind a pot machine and then they are shooting at him still and they hit the pot machine and he says, no, no, there's cans in there too. Everywhere he's trying to run, theres he thinks they're after them and it's hilarious because it's like, they're not shooting the cans, they're shooting you. And so he asked this rhetorical question, Habakkuk, in a kind of a joking way. He says, Was God angry at the Red Sea? He made it part. Was God angry at the rivers? Was God angry at the oceans? No, of course not. God made the Red Sea part so that his people could walk through, right? God used that incidence in nature to show that he had the power over nature, to show that God could protect his people. And the Exodus is referenced a lot in the Bible because it's crazy to think about. A whole group of people living in slavery, they have nothing, and God says, let my people, let them go. Let them go worship me. And of course Pharaoh says no. Why would I let them go? You know, they're good workers. But God defeated them, and finally Pharaoh says, you can leave, and as soon as they leave, Pharaoh regrets letting them leave, and sends his army, an army after these people who are running away. They are running away, and God parts the Red Sea and allows his people to walk through safely, and then the Egyptian army says, okay, we got them, and they follow in after them, and then the Red Sea closes along the Egyptian army and completely destroys them. And so this helpless group of people with no no. Weapons who are running away, they get victory, right? To show that God himself has the victory. To show that God himself are, is in charge. It's just just a crazy story that, like, God showing that he is the one who is God. God is the one who is God. And then they wander in the desert for 40 years, right? And they go up to the promised land. And now Moses is gone and Joshua is going to take, be the leader and they come up to the to the great Jordan River, and God stops the Jordan River flowing so that the people could cross through the river and to get into the land that God had promised to them. It's amazing that God went before them all along the way and won their battles for them and did the work for them. And then in verse 9, you see that word Selah, which again, it could be a change of scene, it could be like a change of, of, of music of some kind, but it We now see that the Lord's power in earth and water and sky. And God arrives, like as a, verse 9, like a a bowman ready for action with his bows and arrows. And then this main part of this, this stanza recalls these three elements here in verse 10. It says, the mountains, they writhed. The deep oceans lifted its hands on high. And the sun and the moon stood still out of the way of Yahweh's bright flashes of light. It says in verse 11. So earth and water and and fire in the sky acknowledge God, the creator, and acknowledge that God is the one who is delivering his people and saving his people. And again, we are reminded of a time in history where God caused the sun to stand still. Verse 11 there, that happened, Joshua chapter 10. If you um, keep your finger and head back at three and turn back to Joshua chapter 10 to see how God worked with his people. It wasn't just in deliverance. But it was in going to where he wanted them to go, too, in Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. It says, At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still at Gibeon, and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jeshar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set about for a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. For the Lord fought for Israel, and the Lord... Won the victory for Israel. This is what Habakkuk is referencing that God can control the sun and the movements of celestial bodies. That God is the one who wins the victory for us. Using this time in Israel's history to say that God is still at work today. And God has done these great things. In verse 12 to 15, he it's kind of a summary of all of the things that God did for his people. And he lists six ways that God defeated his enemies that god marched in fury that god threshed the nations he went out for the salvation of his people you know it says there the anointed the anointed one often referred to israel in uh, the book of exodus and the book of psalms sometimes it referred the anointed one referred to the king which was a symbol for all of god's people there but god crushed the head of the wicked and laid him bare god trampled uh, pierced him with his own arrows And God trampled the sea with his horses, the surging of mighty waters, it says in verse 15. Again, reminding us of the Red Sea. Like, the people didn't have horses. The Israelites didn't have horses, right? But it was kind of like, if you could think the Red Sea was God's horses, God's horses defeated the Egyptian horses and chariots. So what you see here in these poetic lines here is the Habakkuk song describes a battle scene in which Israel is helpless and, but God fights the victory and scatters the enemy. And it says that, uh, that they came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, it says in verse 14. And so chaos was you know about to descend on, on God's people. God turned the tables, defeated chaos with a storm, and then it says that God uh, walked on the waters. He trampled the seas. And so The original listener here, he he would have understood that what Habakkuk's doing, he's looking to the past, and he's talking about all the things that God has done. And so what gives Habakkuk now, and what gives us confident hope in waiting? So what gives us the confident hope? What he's saying is, is we look back to what God has done, and we look forward to God completing the promises that he has given to us. When Israel was suffering and lamenting under hardship, He looked back at God's creation and God's sustaining of God's people. And that's what allowed him to to stand in confident hope in the midst of troubling times. That is what he was able to do. And this is the hope that holds Habakkuk and this is the hope that all obedient people of God have whenever we face trying times and difficult times. You know, they believe that Yahweh will eventually do this to Babylon as well. And so... Until this happens, this song is what the people are having. This is what the song that they're holding on to as they hold on to their faith here. And then finally, you look at verse 16. And look at Habakkuk's response here. He says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. So you got this picture I mean, over and over, you see the repetition, over and over again, you have this picture of a guy who's just like, he's coming undone. His knees are weak. He's sweating. He's anxious. He feels it physically in his body about what, just reflecting on what God has done. I mean, and what God is going to do. And so what is his response? Is that he he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So he says upon the Chaldeans, right, he knows they're going to have trouble too, and he's waiting quietly for God to finish the job, finish the justice, administer the justice that is going to happen. He's waiting for the invasion, and he's waiting for God's justice. And that is where we find ourselves today as well. I don't think we're going to be overrun by foreign invaders. I don't think anybody's going to be taken into captivity like they were. But we are waiting until the final day when Jesus will come again in all of his glory for all the world to see. And on that day, the fame of Jesus will again be seen throughout the whole world. This Christmas is coming up. You know, we celebrate how Jesus came to this earth, and he came quietly. Veiled, hidden in a sense. But when Jesus comes back again, he's going to make everything right again. And his glory is going to be seen throughout the whole earth. And so until that day comes, we can wait confidently. We can wait confidently knowing that he is going to come and make things right again. And so we pray for revival. We pray for the good news of the gospel message to go forward. We pray that people would be convicted of their sin. And their self-righteousness and their pride that Habakkuk has already preached about. Pray that that people would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. We look to Jesus Christ as as the author and perfecter of our faith. Knowing that we have no salvation apart from the name of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that revival would come again to God's people. We pray for revival in our own hearts and in his church. And we pray for the knowledge of God to spread. That the knowledge of God would spread into every community, into every household who doesn't know the Lord. And finally, we pray for God's mercy. It says, in wrath, remember your mercy, God. That's what we pray for. We pray for God's mercy in our own life. We pray for God's mercy in our community. We pray for God's mercy in the world. And we pray that God would be glorified in our church, in our own life, and in the world as well.